Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. is coming in. Gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, well, we're joined by one of the fiercest competitors Australian cricket has known. For a decade, Ian Healy was the heartbeat of our national team, a highly skilled and hardworking wicketkeeper who more than had his moments with the bat. He played 119 tests and 168 one-day internationals from 1988 to 1999. Healy took 366 test catches, made 29 stumpings and sits third all-time for test dismissals with 395. He scored over 4,000 test runs and an average of 27.39, including four centuries and 22 half centuries. He's been appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia, a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year, a member of the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, and he joins us now. Heels, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, great to be with you. Just for nostalgia... Can we please get a bowling, Shane? Bowled one, eh? That was the soundtrack of summer for many people, Heels. Well, it, it turned into that. It was not not good. I felt sorry for a lot of people having to listen to that. The, the worst one was in a South African tour. They even put that on the radio mics. You know, so people would have been driving in their cars hearing it. That would have been no good. The duty of father's work as a bank manager, I think it was, the family shift 600 kilometres north to the town of Biloela. Now, many people might not have heard of Biloela, but it's where you <laughs> got your grounding in a number of sports, including cricket, of course. Yes, I, I, I couldn't um, uh, value uh, that, that sort of growing up uh, area uh, highly enough. I really only noticed uh, how much how much value was in my youth uh, when my kids grew up in the city, and I I then got a sense of how much they were missing out on because you know it's so busy in the cities you have to drive them to that practice whilst the other child's going to swimming for example and you can't do as much as I did in the country where I just get on the bike and go to the local fields the sports complexes were good. And I could play lots of different sports um, uh, at my own pace and quite often against adults. And it was extremely valuable that city kids miss out on. You obviously found cricket or cricket found you, as we'll get to in a moment. But what else was the young Ian Healy into as a kid growing up in Biloela? 
Well, when I was, I went to Billow as a seven-year-old, so I'd already played soccer in Brisbane. Um, but when I went to, when I got to Billow, there was no soccer, so I took up rugby league. Um, so I played league and and very strong uh, winter leaguey. Uh, I'd be the ball boy for the senior teams, and I'd hang out with a, a Billawila club that would travel uh, and do bus trips for their games. Um, you know, their away games, you know. So uh, that was a, just a wonderful involvement that I had. They made me feel really special. Um, and, uh, you know, basketball was just taking off. That was in the, the early 70s. Um, and basketball was starting to come into schools and, and that those sorts of things. So we, we played a bit of that too. But, but generally, you know, you'd go athletics, you'd go cross country, you'd go squash. We had a good squash centre in Billow basketball, um, volleyball, anything that the school was offering, uh, heels I was into. Um, and then, of course, um, <laughs> and cricket, you know. Um, you know, my older brother had already started to pave that way. Just on the family and more extended family these days, it must be nice seeing a Healy behind the stumps at international level. Your niece, obviously, Alyssa, is continuing the family tradition with the Aussie women's team. Yeah, yeah that family tradition of one. Uh, she's, she's awesome. Um <laughs> She, she uh, has got a wonderful attitude. Um, she doesn't get too stressed. She, she does stress, actually. She, she um, it, it works harder than it looks at times. Uh, she's, you know, she, like every athlete, you hit uh, rough patches similar times most years. Um, so, you, you know, she's, she's really learned how to cope well with those and, and implement a strategy when she is feeling a little tired or a little flat or... Uh, not quite watching the ball. She, she's now really moved into a full-time athlete where where she fixes problems much quicker than she once did. So, yeah, she, she's an awesome performer, and I'm not sure we've seen the best of her yet. You're 11 heels, and the Sheffield Shield team stopped by for a clinic, and it was conducted by the Queensland wicketkeeper John McLean, who many listeners will remember. This is a memory you cherish, isn't it? Because from the outside looking in, was this the first moment where the genuine seeds were sown, do you think, that desire to be a keeper at the highest level? No, just before that, um, I, I sort of sowed them, and certainly uh, I was right into it by then. I started at about a nine-year-old, and I think I'd seen the ten-year-old who was going to be the wicketkeeper in this team they were about to select. I saw the extra attention he was getting, I reckon. I can still vividly see him taking catches over with the coach. And from that time on, I said, I want to do that next year. So I, I, I was the wicketkeeper from that year on. Um, and then what the hell were Queensland coming out to Bellawila for? I still haven't got the answer to that, actually. I, I'm sitting here now in the <laughs> Queensland cricket boardroom um, doing this uh, chat, having this chat with you, and I still haven't asked the question, what the hell did they come out there for? But they played a two-day game. Uh, I, I was on the scoreboard. Um, uh, and I got hives. The tree dropped something on on me <laughs> on the first day. I couldn't couldn't make the second day. I was up in welts everywhere, scratching around. But there was a clinic the day before, and yeah, that's what you talked about. You know, Jeff Dimmick, John McLean, Malcolm Frankie. They were all, the Queen Greg Chapel was was there coaching these country kids. It can never be underestimated from for, forever that the value of that and and what it can produce. Mm. Um, and that's the first hand that, that I've got. But Macca, who's a good mate of mine now and has helped me around town here in Brisbane uh, corporately, John McLean, 
he gave me nothing really. I asked him for his gloves, and he wouldn't. He said, "No, no, I can't give you my gloves, son." And but you know, the <laughs> next the next month, I reckon, I had a pair of John McLean gauntlets from St Peter. So it was, uh, you know, a, an unbelievable experience that we should do heaps more of these days. Yeah. Well, all you had to say, Hills, was, "Come on, Johnny, I've been operating the scoreboard, and it's got me hives. The least you could do is give me yeah. a mitt." <laughs> No, uh, it was way before the hives. It was like a, the first day it must have been, or maybe on a practice day. And then I went to Malcolm Frankie, who was our sort of a Ceylon uh, leg spinner in Queensland and, and a magnificent character. He's probably, I think he's 80 and he's probably still bowling these days. Um, uh, he, he, I asked him if he could give me a ball, you know, and he says, no way, son, they're not mine to give you. You know, so the Queensland team gave me nothing, but I still hung in with cricket. Well, they very much helped that seed grow, didn't they? And if we skip forward, Hills, Australia had gone through, obviously, many people will recall a series of changes, experiments, if you like, with their keeping role in the years leading up to your debut, obviously, in the wake of Rod Marsh's retirement. And some critics suggested at the time that your selection after just six first World R first class games was simply a continuation of those experiments. Looking back, were you ready? Was it a case of learning quickly on the new job? It must have been overwhelming at the time. Uh, yes. Um, was I ready? Uh, probably not. Um, but I, I sort of did get a sense of uh, if I was just half decent at this, they were ready to be patient. Um, I guess they, when you throw in a, a youngster, I wasn't that young. I think I was 24. Um, I, I, you know... They owe it to me to stick with me a bit. But I had the support of Alan Border from Queensland. So he played played those six games with me. The Australian captain in your corner is a a bit of a bonus. Um, That form Mm. that I... In my six games, I was in in quite good form. So it looked as if I was ready. Um, But there's no way I was ready for the next step. Um, It was always a dream of mine to, to play for Queensland when Peter Anderson, the number one wicketkeeper in Queensland, was picked for Australia, you know. So when I got to the Queensland team, you know, I'd been thinking about that for a long, long time, you know, that when Ando gets picked, I'll get five games a year for Queensland if I'm good enough. So I was ready for those, but certainly not to play for Australia so quickly. Um, But McDermott was, uh, you know, in my youth teams that I'd captained, um, Border was uh, with me at practice and in those games uh, year after year in the state squad. So they were able to influence Greg Chappell and Greg Chappell was the only selector that knew me. He went around the country and watched every one of those games. I, I, I just, I kept thinking, wow, how good is this? Greg Chappell's here again. You know, and I thought it was fantastic that he was he was uh, watching our games, but he was there for me, you know. He even talked to me sometimes. He came and asked me questions, and geez, I was lucky I gave him the right answers because he was he was dead set sussing me out. And uh, he then convinced <laughs> Bobby Simpson and Laurie Saul, the other selectors, that this bloke could go all right, you know. But I knew none of it at the time. I was wide eyed and having a go. You mentioned Pete Anderson there. Is it true that early on in your time at Shield level, when you were obviously an understudy to Peter, that you considered for a brief time perhaps throwing in the gloves to focus on the batting craft? Yes, um, yeah. I actually play. I captained Queensland Colts, which is under 23s, um, as a batsman, and I was the keeper. So yeah, that that was um, uh, disc- well. I thought of it a bit, um, and then 
I was talked out of it by the Queensland Chairman of Selectors, Ernie Tooby, said that, no, there's no need to do that. You just keep going. You bat well with the gloves and you, you, we can pick you with the bat if we needed to, if we ever need to, need to. so whether you're keeping or not. So, um, and, and my teammates now will be listening to this game. There's no way you were going to be good enough as a fielder anyway. So um, <laughs> I, I just, uh, I was talked out of that. Um, and it turned out to be um, quite lucky because Ando did get injured a couple of years in a row, which gave me enough games at the top level to to sort of show people, some people, that I, I could uh, hold this spot down maybe. And when you did start to hold that spot down at test level heels, and it might have surprised a few, was there a particular test or an innings or even a moment that you recall where you felt, yeah, I, I belong here? Yes, there is. Um, and I was walking along a corridor in Sri Lanka, in Colombo, uh, at the Taj Hotel, from the lift to my room. And I think I'd made 62 or something that day in a low-scoring match. And that was the moment that I felt quite valuable to the team um, for my contributions uh, verbally and, you know, uh, tactically, and not just, just my batting or whatever, but that that's the moment. And I reckon it was... 91 or 92, which means I'd played for two to three years um, at, at the top level uh, until I got that feeling. Um, and that's why I always advocate for patience in selections or droppings. Um, you know, we rush to select blokes too often in, 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 for my liking, and then um, we don't give them enough time to, you know, get, even get close to that feeling of value in their own minds. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Next, Ian Healy on that special relationship with a blonde leggy by the name of Shane Warne. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with Aussie wicketkeeping legend Ian Healy. Heels, the collaboration with Warney. Um, first of all, what a joy he must have been to keep to, but your ability to read what he was doing was evidence you were both highly skilled, but also on the same wavelength. Uh, yes, it was an absolute delight. Um... Uh, when he was introduced into the system, um, he, it was off the back of a West Indies under-19 trip that he'd played on and uh, had impressed everyone with what was coming out of his hand. So uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't difficult to read at all. He was um, quite simple, which makes his 708 test wickets even better than, than if he was deceptive out of the hand, you know, and tricky. Um, but... But when I first saw him, um, Australian cricket used him in the uh, Governor's 11 or whatever it's called, Australian 11. We used to play the touring team in Hobart prior to the test summer. Um, and I was captain twice to have a look at this bloke. And Bobby Simpson was the coach. And, and he was there to really see this Shane Warne bloke and see what he was like. Anyway, oh, he just bamboozled the West Indies one year. Um, and he reminded me of a an old legend, a country legend, a senior cricketer um, with um, real uh, mature mannerisms 
Uh, some of the country legends I grew up watching in my little town in Biloela, um, and this was Shane Warne at about 21 years of age. He was incredible how mature all his mannerisms were. Your partnership with him, I think we first saw that really blossom on the 93 Ashes Tour, and of course, you had the best seat in the house for the now-known ball of the century. Yes, well, and we'd watched plenty too. I think just before that Ashes Tour, we went to New Zealand and Oh, gee, he was beating the bat with some unbelievable deliveries. And that's when we had to sort of say to him, well, we think you've got to pitch the ball outside leg. Can you do that? And he go, yeah. That was his, his greatest skill and attribute was his accuracy. And then his ability to adapt was the fastest and probably being the fastest. I think he could change his line and his, and his shape of his deliveries even quicker than Nathan Lyon as an off spinner. His ability to just say, yeah, I can, I'll, I'll buy one outside leg, then I'll buy one outside off. I'd only ever worked with uh, legs, you know, um, who took time to change lines and lengths, uh, Trevor Holmes. Um, so, but Warney was unbelievable, adaptable. Um, some of the things he was bowling in New Zealand were spinning way too far for the batsman and then bowling a, a wicket. He got Ken Rutherford bowled around his legs, Um uh, Hansi Cronier was over there to the South Africa, India and New Zealand. We were playing a quadrangular series of one day. <laughs> it was, he then, he bamboozled heaps right from the word go. And, and yet we could all pick him from the clubhouse. Um, and and so, you know, this we thought, oh, gee, if this bloke stays fit and on the field and we can bowl him a lot, we're in good shape here. And I think Warney once said, when just going back to the Gatting ball, that he knew the ball had done something special when he looked up and he saw the look on your face when you came down the pitch to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I um, I uh, looked at Gat too, Mike Gatting. Uh, it was a ball of it, it had just done enough all the time, just swung in enough for for Gat to want to watch it without really smothering it. So he didn't move his front foot; he just left his front foot back enough. And because he was mesmerised by this ball that was coming at him, his bat didn't snap down and smother the ball either. It was just slow. So the, the ball just snuck past a pad which should have been out further and a bat which should have been down a touch quicker. And it spun just enough to clip the off stump, the top of the off stump. It, it sort of didn't make much of a noise. And Gat looked at me and he got eye contact with me saying, what have you done? You've knocked the bales off here. And and I was about to give him a gobble, but I, thankfully I didn't. I ran straight past him and to Warney, and um, yeah, it was it was a ball of just enough. So I've seen we'd seen Warney swing the ball more, spin the ball more, um, but on that day it was just enough for the perfect scenario, the perfect combination of everything, and and England's best player. So we could then feel from the balcony, an England team go, yes. We, we might have this bloke for 10 years. And they they got that wrong. It was 15 years they had to put up with him. It was an incredible <laughs> challenge to make runs against Warney. You know, ridiculously hard. But there's no doubt your influence behind the stumps loom large with a lot of Warney's dismissals. I mean, you were able to keep batsmen largely rooted to the crease rather than advancing down the pitch. And then when they did, eventually frustration boiling over and the temperament tested to a point when they did come down the pitch, there were some unbelievable stumpings. I think you hold the Graham Thorpe stumping of that year most closely to your heart, don't you, as your best ever? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it was. And I, I, I stumped... Uh, Thorpey the same way twice I've found out. Uh, one was in Perth and one was in Birmingham. Um, so, 
So, um, you know, one that, you know, they both bounced more than everyone expected. Uh, I was there to, and it slid, it didn't spin, um, slid on. So you can easily get distracted predicting what might happen um, rather than just watch what does happen and be ready, be in great body position to react. And and I got him twice that way. Um, yeah, there's there's an amazing amount of energy going on around the bat there when Warren was bowling. You know, it, it was a, a, a supreme challenge every delivery. And, and, you know, you think, as a batsman, you think to yourself, you know, Jesus, another 180 of these for the day. He'll bowl 30 overs, this bloke. And every ball has just got his challenges and energy all over it and around the bat. The short leg fielders, the keeper, the slips, you know. So Warney did get a lot of confidence. We're, we're all very confident that, you know, our catches, um, whether it be me and Mark Taylor at first or Mark War when he had to go in there, you know, Steve War was always in a silly point. And then we bring in a young, young Ricky Ponting and a Matthew Hayden diving everywhere from short leg. It, it, there, there were some challenges happening for the bats. And your batting, while it was generally solid throughout the first half of your career or thereabouts, did you feel it really went to another level from that tour as well, to, right through to the end of your career? Yes, definitely. Um, and I think it's, I think it's just the full time nature of being in a career. So you get to practice a lot more, you know, rather than Tuesday and Thursday afternoons at state practice, uh, and you get you get a bat as it's getting dark. Um, and, and sort of you, you're a bit scared. You, you see Jeff Thompson walking out and you go, oh, no, Tomo's not going to bowl this time of night, is he? And so so he wants to have a few overs uh, to get ready for the weekend. And, and they all go, geez, he's not very good, this young bloke, because <laughs> you can't see anything and you're nervous and scared. So, um, and then, you know, when you get into into practice uh, in the Australian setup, and uh, or when you get on tour, that's another way. When I went away with the Queensland team, you can do heaps more practice, and it, it was it was really good. So so the batting was there. It then it did take a you know those you know a couple of years to emerge as it as it used to be playing for Queensland or my club side. So I was an interesting one. I, I basically I was a clubby who was now playing for Australia and doing, trying to do my best. Oh, geez. Well, I don't know. Don't sell yourself too short. You paint a nasty <laughs> visual there, Tomo in fading light. But Old oh, Trafford awesome. plays host to the first. You maiden ton, obviously, at uh, first-class level. Tell us about that moment. That must have been really special. Yeah, it was really. It was a great day. And and prob- the fact that I didn't know that, I didn't even imagine there was enough time for me to, for me to make 100, let alone um, get there. Um, but we went, we were going into day four at Old Trafford, but we needed to sort of build our lead and then get England in in the in the afternoon session and try to get them out uh, the next day, day five, you know. So, uh, and in the morning, first up in the morning, I think we went bang, bang, boon and border out and I'm in. I've only just got my gear on, you know, and I'm rushing out to that, which is a good thing because I can overthink it. Um, so I'm out there and when I was about 20, not out, I was batting with Stephen War. He said, "This, I reckon, this is going to be your day." And I said, "What do you, what do you mean? You'll get a ton here." I said, "You're joking, aren't you?" Like I, I wasn't even thinking of that. We were just knocking singles around and and combining really well and running England quite ragged, you know. So the lead was getting up there, and and um, so he then started to feed me the strike a bit, and I got into my nineties, and we went to another drink break, and 
I said, well, Puggy, how do you, how do, you do this? You know, what, what do you reckon I should do? And he said, bugger if I know. I've stuffed 10 of these up myself. So he gave me nothing. <laughs> and I, I went, um, I went bang, bang. I went 4-4 four, four off Philip DeFreitas and uh, brought up my 100. And, uh, yeah, yeah, the celebration was good. Mum and Dad were over there. And uh, Dad had just recently retired from work. And it was great. It was really good. And then we went, we went on. I, I think we got a wicket or two that night, and we went on and got England out in day five. That was even the better the better scenario. That The match was won as well. We didn't waste time, so it was good. It was great. Yeah, I love the old uh, stories. And while we're on the subject of hundreds, I can't imagine the level of satisfaction you got out of this. It was the summer of 96, 97 here in Australia. 161 not out. You do it at the Gabba. You do it against the West Indies, no less. That must have been a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, that was a good day. Um, it was, you know, and a couple of things had to go right. Uh, so quite often when you're batting at number seven, you, you know, you, you don't get it. And the, and the conditions are good and easy for batting. The top order make pigs of themselves and they, they do their job, you know. But on, on this type of day, I got out there in the afternoon of day one and, and I looked at the pitch and I went, holy hell, it's this. It was just beautifully uh, consistent the whole way down, it looked like a just, you just wanted to lie on it. It was so good. And we were five down. So our top order had failed in these perfect conditions. It was So that was a good feeling. And then when, you know, throughout that last session of day one, the West Indies felt like in slow motion. So something's, you know, going right in my head. The, the messages are going from eyes to brain to, to muscles quite well. My shot selection was good for once. And everything, everything just clicked. And then the next day, it, it continued. Um, so it, it was a great feeling. Any any time when the West Indies don't feel super fast at you is a great time. And and then even in the second innings, I think I, I got forty five not out uh, in the quest for quick runs in the second dig too. So uh, yeah, nice times. Fantastic, fantastic. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. After this break, the banter, the mental battles, and breaking through in the Caribbean. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with Australian cricketing great Ian Healy. Well, speaking of chatting heels, were you always chatty behind the stumps? Yes, I was. Um, and pr- probably stemming from the very early days as a 10-year-old, 10, 10, 11-year-old captain. You know, so um, encouraging bowlers, trying to get these, you know, the country bowlers from my small town bowling where, where I wanted them to do, you know, encourage, enthusing and um, congratulating fielders because we'd roped them into play. We wanted to try to make it interesting and, and enjoyable for them. So I reckon it probably stemmed from those early captaincy days. Um, but I always uh, feel a chatty or definitely active, but I think a wicketkeeper needs more than silence. Um, and more than just beautiful skills, there needs to be a presence behind that the bat- batsmen are feeling um, for mine. And I think those type of keepers are more effective than very quiet ones. Um, and, it, you know, I feel sorry for 
keepers who aren't naturally chatty. Um, they've either got to put something on or they'll be less effective anyway. Our younger listeners' heels will um, know the mind games that Tim Payne plays with the opposition from time to time. I mean, how big a role does that play as a keeper? You speak of that presence. How big? A, how important is that? Well, I don't think it's important at all, um, and it's quite a new thing. Um, and I, I don't really agree with it, um, that you're talking personal, personally and uh, to, to a batsman. You know, it's not in the etiquette of the game. It's not in, in the, the standards set, set before the, the laws of the game. Um, there's a thing called the preamble to the laws, and you are not to distract purposely a, a player of the opposition. So, so I don't really like it. Um, every now and then in our time, uh, there'd be the chattiness would be bowler encouragement, fielder lift or encouragement. Every now and then there'd be a blow up between a bowler and the batsman or the, a wicketkeeper and, and the batsman. Desmond Haynes and I had a stoush in, in the West Indies, but but that a blow up's fine. But I'd like to see both players punished or or the the guilty party punished in the paper the next day for kids to read about. Um, it just can't go on unchecked. So uh, yeah, th- there was never much personal chat, and and I was. Again, quite a good benchmark for this because I went, as I said before, from club cricket really to test cricket in Pakistan um, as my debut. And there was a postcard I wrote back to a club mate of mine and I, and I stated how quiet it was out there. You know, it's much quieter than club cricket. You know, when Norse used to play South was on this postcard. So the step up was... Uh, market compared to what we what how we play in Australia. So, so but I I, I mm. think that's been lost again. You know, India are quite an aggressive team. The tendency would be to to sort of uh, retaliate there. But I, I'd keep it, you know, minimal distractions to the opponent and not personal at all. And there's no doubt the stump mics probably changed it too, hasn't it? Because not much is kept in house, or at least not as much as you would think would have been back in the day. No, well, I mean, they've always been there in my time, but they got turned up and down. They were really there for to capture the sound of the ball on the bat, the footmarks mm-hmm. of a bowler, the scraping of the batsman's feet, um, and then they turned them down. But they they came out last year, or it might have even been the year before now, and sort of said, no, the stump mics are now open for the whole time. So don't think don't think that anything's going to be um, covered up. But, Heels, the more humorous exchanges, and last one on this, have lived on over time. They've become, in fact, the stuff of cricketing legend. You had a humorous exchange, did you not, with Arjuna Ranatunga on a warm night at the SCG many years ago? Well, it wasn't humorous at the time, don't worry. You know, our team was under real pressure because we're in the final of the uh, World Series Cup, um, best of three mm-hmm. final series against Sri Lanka. I think we'd won, we're one nil up. Um, and we just wanted to get it done because then we were going to Sri Lanka. We were going to Colombo for our World Cup uh, pre-tournament camp. That's how much we liked Sri Lanka. We chose to go to Sri Lanka for our camp. Um, but uh, Murali had been called for throwing um, in the Boxing Day test and that the animosity between the two countries, not the two teams, but the two countries was yeah. huge. I mean, yeah. we were getting threats from everywhere and... And the uh, federal police were involved in investigating a couple of them when we when we were to go to Sri Lanka. Uh, it was really a stressful time. Anyway, Arjuna, <laughs> a great player. He could play Warney as, as well as anyone. 
um, and and knew it. We had a rain a rain shortened target. We were we were on fire, going to make a huge total. It rained, and now it's 25 overs for 170 odd that they had to make, and all 10 wickets to to do it with. And Arjuna was out there slapping Morney around, and and he called for a runner, and and he was not many. And um, I look out the I look out to the dressing rooms, and Sanitar Surya was a padded up. So the world's fastest player is about to replace the slowest who doesn't just doesn't want to run. He wasn't injured or anything. And uh, I said, mate, you can't have a runner for that fat, you know, which which you can't. There's a, a fatigue element in cricket. And he said, I, I've got cramp. I said, you've got cramp. Have a look at you. And I know exactly why you've you got cramp. <laughs> anyway, well, they, he gave, they gave him the runner. And Warney got him out, thankfully, that night. And we won. And they didn't even shake hands with us that night. That was a bit ordinary, which, which really... Um, Upset their fans, got their fans riled. They got right behind their team, you know. And and then we we didn't go to Sri Lanka. We went and we got pushed around in in India for in bad conditions in the World Cup pre-tournament. We forfeited the game. The first game was to be against Sri Lanka in Colombo. We forfeited it because of death threats and stuff like that, security concerns. And then, as ironic as it as it gets, you know, we both met in the final. And uh, they beat us, so it was a, it was a yeah tricky time. But no, not that wasn't a very humorous, humorous one. But uh, yeah, there's plenty. The, the humorous ones, the the one Tim Payne was talking to, I think it was Shab Pant, wasn't it? That sort of yeah. come and babysit. You know, that was that was pretty good because Pant was in a nice frame of mind to to you know go with it. But you know, don't try to distract players um, consciously uh, too often at all. The 1995 Tour of the West Indies heels after obviously all the pain, physical as well as mental, they had caused in the years gone by to finally get your hands on the Frank Worrell Trophy. Oh, the celebrations must have been large that night. And that was almost at the time, wasn't it, the final frontier for Australian touring teams? Yes, it was. In our generation, that was the the most difficult cricketing challenge. Um, I think we still love the Ashes uh, because of its tradition as the best cricketing experience. But, yeah, we had to get over the West Indies. Um, we couldn't really do it um, until 95. We'd really like to have done it a little earlier, but, but their team had to change. They were that good. Their team changed. You know, Viv had left, and uh, I think uh, Desi might have left, uh, and Jeffrey Dujon. So so their team changed a little bit, and then we, then we were able to pounce. Um, we had a, a, that series in 1993 in Australia where we lost by one run in the series um that was the that was the time when we would have liked to have uh just sort of uh beat the cycle if you like but their team changed uh richie rich took over and we were able to beat them it was still tough it was it was re- really tough but the celebrations is i can still vividly see steve war you know late at night walking down the, the corridor of the jamaican hotel in his spikes still in his spikes and whites checking every room uh, with a key card, in, just in case it was his, you know. <laughs> he had no idea where he was. Uh, and he was, <laughs> he was still fully dressed back at the hotel late at night. It was, you know, we did. We we, we did know how to celebrate and uh, reward ourselves, that's for sure. In South Africa, so 1997, you win the test with a six, if you don't mind. I hope you don't mind me saying yeah. you didn't need a lot of them. Uh, at Port Elizabeth, dodgy wicket. You were behind for so much of that test match. And... I think Mark Wall made a ton as well, and, and Mark Taylor at the time labelled it the yeah. best win he'd been a part of for Australia. Yeah, well, it's the best uh, win 
for me too. So I haven't really heard what others say about it. That's the best team win I've been involved in. It was unreal, right? So I'd got out in the first innings playing a stupid shot to Hansi Cronier, um, a, a hook or a pull shot, caught out forward of square on the boundary. Right? So little did I know that that was great preparation for the second innings because Mark War, we're going great. As you said, Mark Wall made 116, I reckon, um, and he he got out, and he he'd batted. I checked this up in in the past. He, they'd batted for 90 minutes. He and Michael Bevan batting at seven, um, and I was coming in at eight. So when when I went in to join Bevo, we needed 12 to win, and the first ball I got out there, Michael Bevan got out, and so he got out for 24, and that brought Warney in. And so Warney came in and said, I, I can't feel my legs. And I'm thinking, holy, the dressing room's not too confident. <laughs> anyway, and his helmet was all, his helmet was all skewish. And I said, Warney, what can you see out of your helmet? What, what have you done? He said, I don't know. I can't see much at all. It's, and he would have smashed his helmet when he batted last time uh, and after he got out. And he hadn't put the helmet back on since. Um, because he didn't bat oh, with no. it at practice or something, right? So he's got this stupid helmet on, and he can't feel his legs. He plays a shot, his first shot, and he hits it over mid-off for three. And we run hard, and that's the end of the over. Warney's back on strike. We need nine to win. Now, Jack Callis is bowling these late reverse in-swingers, and that's no good for Warney. He's useless at that. So he gets LBW, um, and he's out. And then Jason Gillespie comes out. I'm st- I still haven't faced the ball. And anyway, I, I scunged through. Dizzy survived that over from Jacques Ellis. I, I hit a four, and I guess Hansi Cronier kept bowling because he, he fancied himself against me. I, I reckon um, Alan Donald probably should have been bowling one of those two in, but they, they were on a bit of a roll, you know. They thought they had it. Anyway, I clipped, I ended up clipping that six off, off my toes, and uh, I thought it was down leg side, but it was off the stumps. And, and, you know, went for six and we won. It was it was an amazing experience. We were so far behind after the first innings and then we yeah. got nine for 57 and and we had to chase down 270. It should have been 470 that we were chasing, but a good bowling performance, then that great century by Mark Wall got us there. Another great memory occurred the following year in Islamabad. I think it was uh, October of 98. You become the most successful test wickkeeper ever and you get past Rod Marsh, your idol's previous record. It was 356 uh, number career dismissal and it was, was him Akram, wasn't it? Caught behind off Colin Funky Miller. Yeah, and it was a good catch, so that makes it even better. It wasn't just a regulation nick off a fast bowler. Um, so it took a bit of catching. Um, that test, I got two in the first morning or, or the first half of the of the first day and thinking, oh, this is going to be done today. And then I had to wait till late in the second innings to get the third one, you know. Um, and, and so that was starting to get a little bit frustrating and I was starting to, you know, think too much and, you know, I hope I don't drop it when it does come, you know. That type of negative thinking was creeping in. Um, so yeah, it was it was good to get it done. We didn't have much to do the next day. We had to we had to play a little bit, maybe knock off a couple of runs or get one or two wickets. But um, then we then we could have a party. Rod Marsh, you know, even in the middle of Pakistan, he found a way to get a bottle of champagne to me. That was an awesome gesture uh, and never to be forgotten by me. 
captaincy heels. You're always seemingly, anyway, a sounding board or a trusty right-hand man, for lack of a better phrase, to Alan Border and, and Mark Taylor. And we know there are opportunities to captain the state and Australian 11 sides. When AB retired, though, did you put your hand up for the top job? Um, no, I didn't really. Um, it was a bit um, oh, insulting to me, I reckon, that we had to do interviews. We, we had to interview and uh, they chose who was to be the captain and vice-captain, you know. Uh, um, they sort of didn't know us well enough, I'd reckon. Their, their engagement, uh, management engagement with us as a team wasn't wasn't good enough that it should have been quite a natural decision, I, I would have thought. But anyway, they had to, we went through an interview process and, and in that interview process, I sort of said, I, I don't think I, sh- I um, you know, should be the captain. Um, but I make the perfect vice captain. I can feel how bowlers are delivering. I can feel how it's coming through to me. I've got a, a great line uh, and to, to you know monitor how we're going against the plans we had. Um, and vice captain would uh, you know would suit my workload. You know if if we need another captain, I would give it to Steve War. You know and, and keep the vice captain the same. If Tubby was injured or dropped, just put Stephen Moore into into the captaincy. Um, so we haven't changed everyone around. And he's doing nothing at Gully. He does nothing but just talk rubbish and sledge at Gully. Let him be the captain, you know. So so he... Um, and, but they couldn't get their head around that. They could not get their head on. I still don't think cricket has. We always seem to want our vice-captain aspiring to be captain. I don't think that makes for uh, pleasant, pleasant environments. So the vice-captain is, is a... Is a role, you know, that you know, four or five senior players should be playing anyway. Um, the captaincy is, mm. is a role, but vice captain not so much. Uh, it shouldn't be an official role had by just one person. So, you, you know, the best teams are full of leaders, and um, you know, they put put their the capacity to lead um, to, to good use. Um, but cricket never really, you know, we've had we've had relationships sour uh, because of vice captains wanting to be chipping away, wanting to be the captain. No, well said. There were no shortage of leaders in your era, that's for sure. Uh, we're talking to Ian Healy on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly to get Ian's memories of playing through pain, retirement and walking into another team, the Channel 9 commentary team. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. Wicket-keeping legend Ian Healy is our guest today. Heels, you were incredibly resilient, but you'd never be a pianist, would you? How many fingers did you bust <laughs> wicket-keeping over the journey? Well, I probably just two, because I got... I got the next raid. <laughs> so I can confirm two bad breaks, uh, but there would have been, you know, probably 40 others uh, that weren't x-rayed. And if you don't x-ray them and you're going to play with them, you, you just need to um, play on as if they're bruised fingers. So, so you know, ice, plenty of ice, plenty of strapping. Uh, you can either proactively strap to pre- prevent something, but I generally would just strap a finger if I... If it was sore, I wouldn't um, sort of take all my hands up every day uh, to stop a break because it wouldn't have worked anyway. 
And you so you only missed over your long career, thirteen year career. You only missed once, didn't you? Um, Pakistan, I think, and it was a broken thumb. Yeah, yeah, a lot. And uh, at that time, we were keen to get out of Pakistan on those tours. They were hard tours, so out I went. Um, yeah, I got one on the end of my left thumb, and uh, I went off. I couldn't get my glove back on. I took my glove off. That was a sign. Normally, I wouldn't. I'd I'd wait till I was off the field to take your glove off. Um, but this one, I couldn't get my glove back on. But my thumb itself, so anyway, I went off the field and the physio could he could feel something cracking in there. But but when he tested my thumb out, it was all good. And then, then he decided just to go up into my hand a bit and uh, oh, went through the roof. Mm. So it was uh, about like between my wrist and the thumb, uh, just a broken bone there. And uh, I, I couldn't function with it, so I couldn't play. So I uh, had it set in Pakistan and then flew out and replaced by Phil Emery. And he smashed his thumb uh, in the next test. Um, he, and I played the first Shield game against him, New South Wales, Queensland. And he came, snuck into, the, into our dressing room and just put my thumb out, put his thumb out under my, under my face. It was like, it was unbelievable. It was about twice the size of a normal thumb. And he, he didn't tell anyone. He did not tell anyone that he'd shattered it in the test because in case I didn't come up, he wanted to play with it again. Um, it was an amazing size thumb that sort of stuffed his career, I reckon, too. Jeez. And what, what do your digits look like now? What do the fingers look like now, Heels, as you look down at them? Oh, they're, they're all right. They're pretty bony. Um, my, I've got an artificial left index finger knuckle, um, and that was the, the bad break I, that our physiotherapist, Errol Alcott, wanted me to get x-rayed because I was going to the West Indies the next week. It was the first test against England. I'd, I'd done some real damage to this finger. And and so he said, I need to know what I'm dealing with over in the West Indies. I need that x-ray. And, oh, gee, the doctor wasn't wasn't going to let me go. Wasn't And I said, no, 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 I'm going. So you just tell me what I'm going to do. And he said, he basically gave me the x-rays back and sent me out of his office anyway. But he was the same doctor then that when I broke my thumb, I went to his office and he had a whiteboard already set up for the four and a half weeks I had to be right for the England test for the Ashes. And he and he was he knew what he, he was dealing with then. He knew that I was want, going to want to play. So he had a four-week program already mapped out on his whiteboard, this conservative uh, surgeon, you know. But, but um, little fingers and index fingers get hurt quite a bit, you know. Uh, little fingers get trapped on the ground between the ball and the ground a lot. And index fingers just get taken in with the ball as it gets as it gets uh, into your palms. Sometimes it can brush against your index finger, which gets a little a little far, further forward of your your middle finger, and so they get belted around a bit. But generally, pretty good. My, my hands are alright. I haven't got big, muscly, meaty hands like Rod Marsh. Um, I've I've got sort of bony, uh, skinny ones that that uh, probably had more damage than than he did. But uh, they all function. Good to hear. There was the emergence then of a young swashbuckling West Australian by the name of Adam Gilchrist. And Heels, you suddenly found yourself out of the ODI team. And selectors actually opted to split the two squads, which, as we know, is par for the course now. But it was a pretty big story at the time, wasn't it? Yes, it was extremely big. Uh, I wasn't happy. Not my form in the one-day game was going pretty good. and uh, But, you know, I had no problem with Gilly coming in there. He wasn't anywhere near as good with the gloves then than he became 
even two years later. Mm. So I think it worked very well. The, the two-year apprenticeship when um, that he was playing for Australia in the one-day team and I was still playing tests uh, was extremely valuable for him as a keeper um, to, to get Warnie in short, sharp bursts in one-day cricket um, and it sort of allowed him to be ready for long spells in tests. And uh, he, he really developed as a wicketkeeper too, not not just his unbelievable batting. I, I think he's the best batsman in the team. Um, and, uh, you know, if he, if he, if I was the coach, and I would have asked Gilly, Gilly, where do you want to bat? And make sure he got the position he wanted and then even put, put the others around him. I, I think Gilly could have batted four right behind uh, Ricky Ponting. And in the lead up, then in the lead up to the 99 2000 Aussie Summer of cricket, cricket, the selectors made it clear that they wanted Gilly to keep for the test team as well as the one day team. Now, you asked uh, to be given the chance to go out on your terms, and I think it was at the Gabba for the first test of that summer, as was tradition, but the selectors said no. Is it, All these years on, is that something that still frustrates you a bit? Because we've seen in more recent times. Some of the greats, they got the richly deserved farewells that, that they should have got. Oh, yeah, didn't they? Uh, but no, I got permission. I got permission to have that. And and, I, and that's why in my what turned out to be my last test, which was a, a test in Harare, um, I, I didn't make any announcements that this was going to be my last test so, because I'd, I'd been given, well, I thought I'd been given the Brisbane test um, and then I was going to retire. But my question to them was, was that, is that possible that I do that, um, or is it going to, you know, upset the, the rhythm of the team and, and Gilly's, Gilly's start to his career, you know, starting in the second test of a series. And anyway, I got the thumbs up mm. from from someone. And um, yeah, then when I got home uh, from Zimbabwe, I went to, to talk to Trevor Holmes and, and uh, how are we going to do this type, type stuff? And he sort of said, no, do what? The, the goalpost had changed big time. Eh? Like it was, uh, <laughs> it was, no, 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 we didn't agree to that. Uh, you're you're out, and uh, oh right. So <laughs> my first res- response was, "Oh, beauty, I don't have to go to training today." So so I was cooked, but I knew I'd get through Brisbane, being my home test. And the last two years, I'd made a hundred, and it was my batting that was going pretty average. So I'd made a hundred in the last two years at the Brisbane test. So so um, I, it, you know, it was something I'd cover off pretty. It, it would get done okay. Uh, but anyway, I was done. It, it didn't. It didn't annoy me as much as it annoyed my father. <laughs> Should have seen him. He'd, he'd go to the cricket. He'd go to the cricket and just keep an eye out for any selector he could. He was ready to give him a gobful every day. <laughs> That's a father's prerogative. That's right. And uh, so it was. Uh, oh, Brisbane provided unbelievable support for me, and in uh, in that moment, and uh, I certainly was farewelled. farewelled very well uh, from Brisbane um, mm. uh, at, a, at a testimonial game later on and uh, a, a bit of a trip around the ground in that first test. And as you were in the twilight of your career, as you mentioned there, was commentary what you wanted to do, Heels? I mean, thanks to obviously to no. Billy Birmingham and the 12th man, the Channel 9 commentary team for a time there became almost as big as the, the team itself. What was that transition like? Well, it was extremely smooth. Um, and, you know, two years, if you had have asked me two years before that, would I be a commentator? I would have said no. I was no, I don't want to do that. Um, but then, you know, Channel Seven Brisbane. It wasn't even Queensland Channel Seven. It was just Brisbane News. Put a put a handy cam in my hand at the '96 World Cup, and I did a weekly report back for the news. Um, I like Street Beat, and um, 
uh, they liked it. And Channel Nine, the boss of Channel Nine, saw it. He was on holidays up in the Whit Sundays and saw it on on Channel Seven News. You know, he says, "What the hell's he over there for?" And so Channel Nine then uh, threw a blanket over a couple of us. Uh, Warney was already with Nine, and Tubby and I uh, got you know got brought into the Channel Nine stable, and that's where it started from. So then on the day when I went in, when I was um, went into the commentary box, it was extremely smooth. That, you know, Tony Gregg tried to tried to make us make it out as if we were on trial. You know, well, boy, you're not you're not in yet, um, so you better behave. And um, Richie was perfect, Chappelle great. Bill Bill was giggling away. Like, oh, oh, you like a hopeless. So so it was it was really really fun right from the day one. <laughs> and do you stay off those segways now? I mean, you got a mouthful of MCG turf <laughs> one summer when you stacked one. Yes, I got into a bit of trouble there too. The, the ground staff didn't like it at all. Um, uh, it's a big divot. So, yeah, the, well they weren't really, but it was it was so. I, like I I purposely fell off it. But I'd done it in rehearsal as well, and the producer said, "Oh, we're going to use that. We're going to use that." And I said, "No, no, no I'm going to do it again." Anyway, I didn't do it as well live, um, and I sort the thing hit. I had to, you know, you when you jump, I sort of stepped off it, which lent it forward, which yep. sped up the motors, and then the wheel hit hit the back of my leg. And then as soon as it hits something, it goes limp, right? So so the stick goes limp and the wheels are really revving up and the stick is dipping into the ground and bringing up these little dip, these divots, which looked a whole lot bigger than they were. They were only tiny little things, really. So it just worked perfectly. Um, but, you know, no one, no one believes me when I said I did it on... I did it on purpose, but I'd done it in rehearsal. I mean, when someone falls over in a suit, you, you think it's an accident, and so I knew, I knew it would have a good effect. Um, but yeah, yeah, I didn't do it very well because I, I nailed the ground. Heels, you're known around the world, obviously, for your feats with the gloves. But in Queensland, you're also praised for your work with aspirations for kids in sport. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I think it's just a, it's been a great ride we, we, for 20 years. I think I've been involved, and it, we might even uh, change tack now since COVID because of no school sport and. And, uh, that, and and not much uh, happening representative sports-wise. But the school sports system is an unbelievable one. You know, it's, it's like 23 sports, boys and girls, under-12s, under-15s and under-19s. It's, it's incredible. So, so uh, and, and I found out more than 20 years ago that there were kids missing out because they couldn't afford it. It was getting too expensive. So we're just sort of, um, you know, the latest version of what we do is we locate pain, they apply to us for our pot of money, to, and we give them some assistance to be able to make that next trend, take that next opportunity in sport because they're extremely sought after kids uh, that have got qualities that make them talented sports people, like motivation and um, focus and concentration, all those sorts of things. Even though they're they're facing adversity, there's been there's some incredible stories out there, and um, they're, they're really great kids. We probably help about between three and 500 uh, kids and families a year uh, with the money we raise. No, that's fantastic. And uh, your part of the world's about to be introduced to Breakfast with Pat and Heels. You're about to slide into the world of yeah. Breakfast Radio with Pat Welsh out of Brisbane up there on SEN track. Yeah, it's about time SEN came to Brisbane and Queensland. So we're, we're extremely fortunate to be the, the chosen ones to do a couple of hours of sport talk in the morning. 
Pat Welsh and I. So we're very much looking forward to it. It's due, because of COVID, it got pushed back too a little bit. It was we were supposed to start well, maybe two weeks ago, actually, early July, I think. And uh, it's early September now. So football will be hotting up and cricket will be starting. So we'll have plenty to talk about. And of course, where's that Melbourne Cup going to be held? You know, wouldn't that be funny if the Melbourne Cup got ran in, run in Sydney? No, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be funny at all. I wouldn't have thought, Ian, and this might be where our conversation ends. Uh, but it has been a real pleasure to talk to you. You brought an energy, an optimism, and an insatiable work ethic to the Australian cricket team. I mean, you were the key to the revival, and then you're emblematic of a golden era, and you set a new standard for professionalism behind the stumps. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're more than welcome, mate. It was my pleasure, and it was all good fun. I've been well looked after. Ian Healy there, and thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.